Well, hello there. Please step inside. Pull up a stool. What type of spirit are you in the mood for? Ah, what a fine choice. Would you like that poured over ice? Or how about skulls? Welcome to the Creepy Speakeasy, where we talk about all things spooky and mysterious. So settle in, grab a drink, and join us as we dive into today's topic. Alright everyone, here we are. The Creepy Speakeasy's inaugural episode. Today's topic will be 10 hauntings in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, this is our home state, so this is going to be a special one for us. There will be some growing pains, just so you're aware. If you hear us stuttering over words, uh, we've never done anything like this before, but it will get better as time goes on. So stick with us, and enjoy the ride. This is Summerwind Mansion. Summerwind, formerly known as Lament Mansion, is a ruined mansion on the shores of East Bay Lake in Villas County, Wisconsin. Located on private land, its, ru its ruins are close to the public, so don't try to go there. Although most Lando Lakes natives refer to the property as Lament Mansion, supernatural tales first disseminated by Ginger Hinshaw's father, Raymond Bobber, claimed the mansion was haunted and refer to it as Summerwind. Some versions of the story claim that Bobber purchased the property only to abandon it because the mansion's rooms had the, had the supernatural power to change shape and dimensions as well. In 1979, Bobber authored a book called The Carver Effect, a paranormal experience in which he claimed the mansion was haunted by 18th century explorer Jonathan Carver. According to Bobber's narrative, the property was often unoccupied due to alleged supernatural activity and the Hinshaw could not get the workers to enter the home to do remodeling work. However, according to one of Bobber's neighbors, Bobber did not live in the mansion. 
never spent the night in it, and instead lived in a trailer on the property. At least two previous residents reportedly denied claims that the house was haunted, and locals claimed that the haunting stories did not begin until Bobber's book was published. A 1980 Life magazine photo essay included Simowin among terrifying tales of nine haunted houses. Apparently spread the apparently spread the supernatural tales originating in Bobber's book. According to author Mary Balosek, locals never believed the home was haunted and were dismayed when the home became somewhat of a supernatural tourist attraction. In 1985, officials of the town of Lando Lakes made an attempt to demolish the vacant home. The Villas County Sheriff said it was a staging area for local teams who burglarized or vandalized nearby cottages. This attempt failed, but the abandoned mansion was later destroyed by fire following a lightning strike in June 19, 1988. Later that week, for fire officials reported that the fire was not suspicious and arson, arson was not suspected since the neighbors reported being awakened when lightning struck the vacant home. However, the fire officials also said that the teenagers frequently used the location for parties and that they may have left a fire burning. These are some of the spirits. The Basement Spirit Around 1918, during the Victorian era, spiritual sessions were very popular. A medium would help patrons communicate with the spirits of the dead, and many wealthy socialites had parlors dedicated to communication with the spirits. The idea was that the spiritual world existed that would sometimes manifest in our dimension was accepted by many in the educated class. In the 1930s at Summerwind Mansion, Mr. and Miss Lamon were eating upstairs when they heard the basement door moving. He went to investigate, thought he saw someone, and shot his gun. He then noticed that no one was there. Blaming the incident on an apparition, the two abandoned the mansion. Photographic evidence shows a basement door with two bullet holes in it. A possible explanation is that due to the isolation of location, and the servants telling him they saw someone or spirits around the mansion, he concluded he needed to protect his family from an intruder. Electrical service at the time was uneven in the house. In fact, the first electric house in Land of Lakes was not built until 1922. And so Mr. Lamon had to use other light sources, light sources such as candles or kerosene lamps, both of which create flickers and shadows. Mentally, he was ready for an intruder and was ready to shoot. Anxiety could create the misinterpretation of the visual play of light and shadow to see a form. He proceeded to shoot the door. Here is another one. The skull in the wall. While remodeling, Arnold Hinshaw asked his daughter to check a hole inside the wall. His daughter screamed and said that there was a head full of hair. However, they did not contact the police or find the head or any hair. The possible explanation is that there was a furry animal instead inside the wall space that escaped when the girl screamed. This could explain why they could not find the hairy head again, but interestingly, interestingly they never contacted the police and expected behavior in 1969. Another one. 
owner playing music on the organ. It has been stated that Arnold was playing constantly on the organ late at night. He said he could not stop playing to prevent a tragedy from happening. This is one of several criteria for people who experience OCD. In addition, he was sleeping very little. Therefore, it appears that he was experiencing sleep deprivation with poor sleep hygiene. Studi studies show that sleep deprivation in people suffering sleep disorders result in visual, tactile, and auditory hallucinations. This can increase the inability to process information properly and create disorders, thoughts, and memories. Arnold and Ginger showed several symptoms which may fit some of the criteria for psychological diagnosis, but we don't know. Arnold had poor sleep hygiene and was obsessed with playing the organ constantly within six months of developing his symptoms. He ended up receiving psychiatric treatment. Meanwhile, Ginger was a housewife witnessing her husband's behaving illogically while raising six children in a socially isolated environment in 1969. They lived for six months in the property. Ginger contemplated suicide and eventually moved back with her parents after treatment. So, I don't know what to think. Are the stories true or are they not true? Um, the house burned down, so I guess we'll never know. Next, we take a trip to Clark County Insane Asylum. Commissioned by the State Board to be built in 1920, the Clark County Insane Asylum was made for housing the insane. At first, the construction of the building was, and its intended use was highly anticipated by the public. The new asylum was established under a predictive concept of providing human care and kind treatment for long-term patients. There were even arguments regarding where in Wisconsin the asylum should be built for the maximum population possible. Ultimately, 1,065 acres of land in Owen was purchased at a cost of $103,600, the equivalent of $1.3 million today, on January 2, 1920. Construction started shortly thereafter. By 1936, Clark County Asylum housed 316 patients who were deemed as having little hope to return to society. Through the years, the staff always tried to make improvements, more rooms, bigger farm, new treatment, the list goes on, but even all the improvements were made didn't rectify the treatment of the patients there. Unfortunately, the human care and kind treatment quickly fell off. Many of the patients that lived at the asylum were subject to terrible experimental treatment. Some of the barbaric treatments methods included electroshock therapy, ice water submersion, and even bloodletting. At one point, after years of torture, a group of patients supposedly turned on the staff and murdered some of them during a patient outbreak. With so much injustice and violence committed within the asylum walls, it's no surprise that it's said to be one of the most haunted buildings in Wisconsin. Visitors who make it out alive report witnessing apparitions, strange noises, and disembodied voices throughout the asylum halls. That just makes you want to go there, huh? This is Brumder Mansion. George Brumder was born in Germany in 1839, moving to Milwaukee sometime in 1857. It was hard to imagine that one young man in a city full of entrepreneurial immigrants like himself 
would make any sort of lasting impact. But he did. George Brumder quickly climbed his way to the Milwaukee elite when he began publishing in German. He became one of the most affluent German Americans in the country. His publications included the popular German newspaper, The Germania. These materials reached German Americans everywhere, giving them a little taste of home no matter where they were. With his growing wealth and now adult son, George Brumder Jr., Mr. Brumder decided to build his son his own home in 1910, what would become known as the Brumder Mansion. The Brumder Mansion was a stunning example of a mesh between arts and crafts, Gothic, and Victorian architecture with renowned architect, architect Hermann Schnecksey behind it all. The red brick home had three stories and nearly 8,000 square feet, giving George Jr. his and his family plenty of space to grow over the years. One of the more notable features was the inclusion of a ballroom with a separate entrance on the basement floor. In contrast, the popular tradition of the time, which unusually placed them on one of the upper floors. When it was finally finished, the grand total was an astonishing $25,000. Unfortunately, Mr. Brumder died in May of 1910 and was, able, was unable to see the completion of the mansion he had commissioned for his son. The Brumder family lived in their new home from around a decade before selling it after the death of George Brumder Jr.'s wife. It was in 1927 that Sam Pick and his brother Ed purchased the home from the family. Sam Pick, his wife Laura Miller, and their son Robert lived there together. If Sam Pick were the were any other average Joe, this change of ownership would have been uneventful. But the Pick brothers had a reputation that preceded them. The brothers were both alleged to have ties to Al Capone and were involved in illegal trade of alcohol during Prohibition years. Sam was already the owner of a nightclub called Club Madrid that was known for its shady clientele to the point where some believed Capone had him open the club as an outlet for illegal booze. Though the FBI reports claim that there is no evidence Club Madrid was ever a mafia-run business. The Brumder Mansion, however, had an, an even dubious reputation. The strangely placed ballroom within the basement of the home within its separate entrance made the perfect place for a speakeasy. The Brumder Mansion basement speakeasy was alleged to have also been the home to gambling and prostitution. Some say that four young women listed as rumors lived with the Pick family in the mansion may have been the prostitutes that worked at the speakeasy, although it isn't known for sure. The Picks left the home around 1932, just before Prohibition was repealed and the house remained vacant for a short time. Briefly, it is said that a group of lawyers occupied the house, but soon it was bought by a couple who used it as a boarding house for a nearby company, Alice Chalmers. In the middle of 1940s, the home was again purchased, this time by Our Savior's Lutheran Church. With the expansion of the church, they needed more space to spread out. The Brumders Mansion became a living quarters for the pastors. Over the years, it also served as a place for offices 
meeting rooms, daycare, a chapel, and a youth center. In 1997, the Brumder was bought by Carol and Robert Hershey, who restored the home to its original beauty and opened up the bed and breakfast basement theater that remain there today. Though there are no longer the current owners, the current owners had stayed at the bed and breakfast in 2007 when visiting from California and purchased it in 2008 when learning that the owners were thinking about selling. To this day, Brumder is still in operation as a historic bed and breakfast with a theater that still hosts many performances. This is The Hauntings. With an illustrious history like the Brumders, there are bound to be a few ghost stories floating around the place. In fact, the Brumder Mansion is home to at least three known spirits that manifest around the various rooms of the home, and some argue even more. Guests and investigators alike have had strange experiences within the bed and breakfast, many of the stories even coming from the previous owners of the B&B. While Miss Hershey owned the Brumder Mansion, she had various experiences with a female entity in the Gold Suite. One night, while staying in the Gold Suite with her dog, she heard a voice shout at her telling her to get the dog out of the bed. She also had said that the mirror in the bathroom of the same room lifted off its hook and was thrown into the bathtub when no one was around, shattering it, and once discovered droplets of blood in the tub basin when no one was staying in the room. Frightened, she thought there was, there may be a body upstairs and that the blood could be coming through the ceiling. From there was no explanation for this. Many guests of and paranormal investigators have also had strange experiences in the gold suite. Those who stay in the room have reported having intense dreams, often of a stern woman. When guests stayed there with their dogs, the woman in their dreams would threaten the dog if they did not remove them from the room immediately. A psychic who once visited the BMB while Hershey operated it reported being visited by spirit of a woman who called her himself herself Aunt Pussy, her real name being Susan. The spirit communicated to the psychic that she was not a fan of the fancy new decor and that she did not want any dogs to stay in the gold suite. It is said that after dogs were no longer allowed in the room, the spirit remained, remained calmer, though Hershey sometimes still had issues with the decor. Another hot spot in the Brumder Mansion is within George's suite named after John George Brumder Jr. in fact. Many believe that George may be the male presence that haunts the room in nearby areas. Strange breezes can be felt in the room and objects go missing from time to time, only to reappear where they, did, they had originally been left. During an investigation in the room, one paranormal research team felt inexplicably cold and heard footsteps and humming from outside the door. Guests and investigators have seen shadows in the room before and during investigations a member of the team was plagued by mysterious headaches when in George's suite that would dissipate as soon as he left the room. Though it could not could have been interference from the equipment in the room causing her head to hurt the exact case is unknown. The third present presence at the Brumder Mansion is the spirit of what is believed to be a young child though it's unknown if they are male or female. It is known to haunt the third floor mostly, 
hanging around Marion's suite. Sometimes guests have reported the same presence on the second floor near Emma's room as well. During an investigation, one team caught an EVB, EVP in Marion's suite of what sounded like a young girl saying, Don't leave me. Help me. Sometimes guests have reported the feeling of someone jumping on the bed or a playful, mischievous presence haunting the room. In Emma's room, a marriage certificate once fell off the wall. The hook and wire are still in perfect shape when the owner found the frame on the floor. The glass in the frame had shattered from the fall. This presence may have also been responsible for times guests have been locked out of the mansion, or when the doorbell refuses to play the tune it has been set, no matter which it ha no matter which tune it has been set as. Though many guests and investigators alike have had interesting experiences at the Brumder Mansion, almost everyone who has stayed there agrees that the spirits ha that haunt the Brumder Mansion aren't malicious. Perhaps picky and a bit mischievous, but most all they are curious. From Aunt Pussy and her distaste of the fancy decor to the youngest presence and their love of tricks to the Brumder. Hold on. Dog break. The Brumder is filled with stories of the paranormal and unexplained. It seems that these stories will continue to remain so long as the residents do. And I'm sorry about the dogs. Uh, that might happen from time to time. They like to bark at nothing. This is Hotel Hell. The correct name is Maribel Caves Hotel, and it was named after the neighboring Maribel Caves in the county of Manitowoc. They also mistakenly refer to it as Motel Hell, but this is most popularly known to the local residents as Hotel Hell. This is some reputed history that has been proven false. The building burned down three times, and each time on the exact same day. It was rebuilt twice. The first fire was in the 1920s. The last fire was in 1930, and everybody died in their sleep. Skeletal remains of some of the victims can be still found on the third floor and in the basement. Years ago, one of the hotel guests went psycho and killed everybody in the hotel during a mass murder frenzy, and afterwards he committed suicide. The spirits of those killed in the hotel have lingered in the building. The spiritual activity attracted a group of local black witches who conducted secret rituals to curse the hotel, and in the process they opened a portal to hell through an old fountain in the front of the hotel. This unleashed a horde of evil spirits that terrorized the town of Maribel. Fortunately, a white witch came to rescue them, sealing off the portal and confined the demons to the boundaries of the hotel and surrounding yard. It used to be a spa in the late 1800s for movie stars. During the Prohibition, the hotel was owned by Al Capone. It served as a hideout for Al Capone and he ran a moonshine business out of the hotel and the water bottling company next door. Underground passageways built beneath the hotel during the bootlegging days contained the lost treasures of Al Capone and Don Jillinger. A little boy was playing on the roof of the bottling factory and was killed when it caught fire. This is the factual history. 
The hotel has burned only once in June of 1985. The cause was unknown. Nobody was killed in the fire. There are no skeletal remains. There is no evidence of a mass murder and suicide at the hotel. There is no evidence of a portal to hell. Al Capone never owned the hotel. At one time, it did operate as a therapeutic spa where guests benefited from effects of mineral spring water. For a while, it did operate as a health spa where people could benefit from therapeutic effects of local mineral spring water. But cinema was in its infancy in the late 1800s. Consequently, it would not have been frequented by movie stars. Australian immigrant Charles Steinbrink designed the hotel to resemble health spas he saw in Innsbruck, Austria. He did. He died in 1892 before it could be built. Eventually, it was built in 1900 by his son, Father Francis Steinbrecher, and Eugene Steinbrecher. It was built with limestone from the area. Thirty masons commissioned by Father Francis of St. Mary's Catholic Church in Kakuna completed the project in four months. The Steinbrecher family ran it as a hell spa hotel and retreat for clergy. When Father Francis died in 1926, the motel experienced a change in clientele which included bootleggers, mobsters, and prostitutes. It went through several owners' changes until it was purchased in 1986 by the present-day owner, Bob Lyman. At one time, a bottling plant was built next to the hotel. The Maribel Spring water was sold to fine restaurants and hotels in Milwaukee, Chicago, and other cities. It may have been a hideout for Al Capone. It is possible he ran moonshine out of it. The hotel was the midday point between Chicago and Al Capone's hideout in Cudaray, Wisconsin. The bottling company would have made the perfect cover for his moonshine operation. Al Capone and Don Jolinger may, fre- may have frequented the hotel. There is no evidence or secret passageways or hidden treasures. There is no evidence to support the story of a little boy dying in a fire at the bottling company. This is the claimed paranormal activity. There have been a number of sightings of a figure standing at one of the windows peering out. Many people report hearing strange noises such as voices, screams from the basement, footsteps, ringing bells, rolling wheels, and things moving around upstairs. The odor of smell sewer gas can be smelled in the bathrooms. Some have claimed to have seen objects levitate and move. In the basement, people have reported having feelings of being threatened. On the third floor, people have reported feeling cold hands applying pressure to their back. Books found upstairs have reportedly burst into flames. Apparitions have reportedly been seen on the front lawn and sitting on the side of the road. The ghost of the little boy who died in the bottling factory fire has been seen playing on the roof. The building glows brightly during the new moon. Blood has been seen on the walls. And there is a dare. If you shine your flashlight at a second story window, a ghost ghost will flash a light back at you. The only documented paranormal activity is reportedly hearing voices, footsteps, and things moving around by the locals who stayed in the building overnight.
Next, we take a trip to the neighborhood of Robert Allen. Robert Allen and the Dell House in 1838, shortly after the Ho-Chunk conceded their lands, Robert Allen, Amasa Willison, and C.B. Smith set out from Illinois to find their fortune in the Dells. They built a crude cabin on Black Hawk Island and clear-cut the pines to be floated down the river to the markets on the Mississippi in the spring of 1839. After the prime timber was logged, Allen was the only one left in the group becoming the first white settler north of Portage. Familiar with the needs of the lumbermen, beginning to run rafts downriver, Allen decided to use his cabin to provide a place for the men to eat, drink, sleep, and amuse themselves after a difficult trip through the Narrows. He opened an inn called the Dell House that offered food, lodging, gambling, and women for entertainment. By the early 1850s, his simple shack was enlarged into a three-story structure with a plastered fireplace on the ground floor. Allen also offered a busy ferry across the Wisconsin River until he and a partner gained a charter to construct the first bridge across the Wisconsin at the Narrows. Allen, who never married and was known throughout the Dells as a man with a thick black beard who wore heavy black boots, sold the Dell House in 1879 as the logging ceased and business dwindled. In 1899, the Dell House was destroyed by a fire set by vandals but the ghost stories continue to be told about the sounds and lights of the Dell House. The remaining root cellar can be found by following the sign at the bend in the stagecoach trail until you reach a bench where the river opens up. What remains of the Dell House structure itself was buried underwater when the hydroelectric dam caused the river to rise. In 1899, the ramshackle building was abandoned. Adventurous tours and local residents occasionally camped out near the site, and so began the tales and ghosts and phantoms were sound said to walk the ruins of the house. Campers spread tales of ghosts and mysterious sounds like cursing, laughing, breaking glass, and pounding footsteps coming from the old structure. Even after being swallowed up by the flooding, there were still many who believed that its ghostly legacy lives on, however. Those who have ventured out near the site after dark still claim that unusual sounds can be heard in the area of the forest and that shadowy figures still slip past the trees and disappear. The story of Mary of Elk Lake Dam. It has almost been 42 years since Mary left her Minneapolis apartment only to meet her fate in the small community of Elk Lake, Wisconsin. It is believed she left her uptown neighborhood wearing a sign that said Madison as she hitchhiked her way to the art show in Chicago. She never made it. To fully fathom the backdrop of this cold case, you have to understand rural Dunn County in west central Wisconsin, about 45 miles east of Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area. Murders don't happen here. A Wisconsin atlas does not view Elk Lake as a city or a lake, but rather an area located on the Euclid-Dunn County line. This region is known as Elk Lake or Elk Creek Lake. A few miles to the west is Old Elk Lake where a tribe of Ojibwas once called home. Elk Creek Lake is a man-made lake that was created to generate electric power for the local residents in a community known as Amy and once a mill even stood here. The town center of Amy was at one time a couple miles northwest of Elk Creek Lake. Amy even had a post office in the local general store from 1886 to 1901. Nothing remains of Amy today as it, as it now boasts fertile farmland. 
County Road E once crossed the dam that holds back the lake as the road twists and turns down and back up the steep landscape that stands over the lake and creek. A new bridge now spans the creek valley and eliminated the sharp curved road. The old steel truss bridge over the dam has even been removed. Elk Creek today draws attention from fishermen who chase the ever-elusive bass. The poker games of Elk Lake Tavern and the horse shows at the Bit and Spur Club. A bit of paranormal envelops the air as sights and sounds of Mary linger in the ghost lore of darkness. There are tales of her intangible present presence at Elk Lake Dam as her crying screams captivate the night and rock your core so you know you are not alone. Her February 15, 1974 unsolved mystery keeps her spirit alive and investigators wonder if this was a passion crime coming a day after Valentine's Day? And is she a ghost of peace communicating beyond the darkness to solve her heinous murder? Traveling in 1974 to an art show in Chicago, Illinois, the body of the 25-year-old University of Minnesota graduate, Mary, was found in a snowy ditch near the shore of Elk Lake. Mary had been stabbed numerous times in a vicious attack. An autopsy showed that she had defensive wounds on her hands, signifying that she struggled with her attacker. A witness reported seeing an orange or gold-colored compact car leaving the scene of the crime. However, investigators were unable to identify the make or model. This same witness called police after observing the suspect dispose of her body in the snow ditch and then flee the scene. To this day, her purse and coat still have not been found. Mary was an honors graduate of University of Minnesota and she was working towards her master's degree when she was brutally murdered. For close to 42 years, her family has been waiting for someone to read about Mary and come forward with the information to bring her killer to justice. As technologies and DNA have advanced, her body was exhumed in 2009 in an attempt to retrieve new evidence. Her picture sits beside the desk of investigators still searching for answers as her echoes ring out across the lake. Eight months after the murder, an anonymous letter was mailed to the crime lab that reads, did you ever think the man that found the murdered girl of Elk Lake also put her there? Anonymous. Next, we visit Nelson's Hall, a tavern on Washington Island at the tip of Door Peninsula in Wisconsin. It is the largest purveyor of Angostura bitters in the world, selling more than 10,000 shots of Angostura annually. But the tavern's history might be even more interesting than its current claim to fame. Nelson's Hall, opened since 1899, is the oldest continuously operating tavern in Wisconsin, getting patrons drunk right through Prohibition. For a tavern to operate as a speakeasy throughout Prohibition is hardly remarkable, but to sell alcoholic beverages with the consent of the county court is, to say the least, unique. Such is the case for a stubborn Dane named Tom Nelson, who founded Nelson's Hall as a dance hall. His clients preferred to be called Islanders, and outsiders had to travel via ferry to visit the club. The remote nature of this club is not the reason for its reputation of circumventing prohibition, although it did help avoid detection at first. When the Volstead Act was passed in October 28, 1919, Nelson wasn't going to give up his business. 
He had heard that alcohol could be purchased and dispensed for medical reasons. He wasn't a doctor, nor did he have access to grain alcohol, commonly prescribed to patients under the guise of a healing potion for ailments such as depression or anxiety. Instead, Tom Nelson applied and received a pharmacist's license to solely purpose of dispensing medical alcohol. Nelson remembered that bitters contained alcohol and were stored at the local drugstore in Sturgeon Bay, mainly to treat stomach disorders. He would prescribe and sell Angostura bitters and a Venezuelan concoction whose recipe was a closely guarded secret. Bitters were never meant to be drunk on their own, at least not as an alcoholic beverage, but the high alcohol content of bitters certainly helped and as Angostura bitters are about 45% alcohol per volume, or 90 proof. In tipple parlance. So Nelson prescribed shots of Angostura bitters to patrons, thus retaining his Islander clientele and saving his business. That is, as the story goes, until a federal agent stopped at Nelson's Hall and observed all the makings of a speakeasy with a tipsy crowd doing shots of a strange substance. When he inquired what the people were drinking, he learned it was bitters. Wasting no time, the agent went to the county seat in Sturgeon Bay and had papers drawn and served to Nelson. The tavern owner was charged with violation of the Volstead Act. He went to court, stubbornly determined to fight for his rights. The state made their case, which was clear-cut. Nelson was serving alcoholic beverages forbidden by law. According to legend, when Nelson was called for his defense, he provided a bottle of Angostura bitters and a shot glass. He cited this product could be purchased at any drugstore and offered many medical benefits, including aiding digestion. Nelson claimed the product was so foul tasting that it could not be considered a beverage and it must be strictly medicine. He also stated his hall had many community uses as a dance hall, a dentist office, a movie theater, and of course, a pharmacy. He then invited the judge to sample the bitters. After taking a sip and wincing, the judge ruled it favor of Nelson, agreeing to beverage worth buying could taste so bad. Thus, Nelson was able to continue serving his island's bitters now legally. He himself was reputed to consume a pint a day and downed his last pint at the age of 90. While Prohibition ended in 1933, the ingestion of bitters at Nelson's continued. In the mid-20th century, Nelson's new owners founded the Bitters Club. The club continued today, and any person who can swing a shot of Angostura is induced. The bartender will dunk a thumb into the patron's empty shot glass and stamp a Bitters Club membership card with its dregs. This initiates the member as a full-fledged Islander entitled to mingle, dance, etc. with all the other Islanders, as the card certifies. Full-fledged Islanders can chase their drinks with the tavern signature and Gostra infused Bitters Burger. Tom Nelson lived and died in the apartment above the bar. Patrons to the bar say they hear footsteps up in the apartment, people feel a tap on their shoulders, especially women, as he thought of himself as a ladies' man and loved to mingle with his female patrons while he was alive. People also report a woman in white flowing dress in the back hallways of Nelson's.
Well, he's still wanting his people to get drunk, which is great. I would too. First, we travel to the town of Baraboo, northwest of Madison, near the Wisconsin Dells. Mostly known for Devil's Light State Park and its connection to Ringling Brothers. It's a quaint and charming little town that pulls in tourists with all the circus-related activities, or as a place to refuel after a long day hiking. But all might not be peaceful as it seems in Baraboo. In this idyllic slice of gorgeous Wisconsin, there are plenty of interesting and otherworldly tales from werewolves to mysterious unknown animals in the woods and more than one report of paranormal activity. There's a stretch of Highway 12 through Baraboo in which many, many people have reported an unexplained phenomenon. Drivers report seeing a man walking along the highway. He appears to be wearing an old green army jacket and jeans. Drivers notice him, but it seems so unsafe for a person to be walking at night. They keep driving and a mile or two down the road, they see this figure dressed exactly the same seemingly having transported himself faster than the car. No one reports of actually stopping to help the so-called phantom hitchhiker, so no one knows what an encounter with this ghost might look like. This is super interesting to me because I've drove through this road probably millions and millions of times, and maybe I've seen him, maybe I haven't. I just haven't really, you know, paid attention to a guy in a green army jacket because... He's just, that's what people wear sometimes. You never know. And my family has been up there millions and millions of times. And, you know, super, super crazy. This is the Feister Hotel. Just three blocks away from the shores of Lake Michigan, Feister Hotel welcomes guests with a priceless Victorian art collection which can easily rival collections from other hotels in the world. Aside from its beauty, the hotel is also very popular for its ghostly residents. The Feister Hotel was built in 1893. $1,000,000 is a grand hotel of the West. It has been in the premier accommodation downtown in Milwaukee ever since. To this day, it continues to serve guests from all over the world and sticks to its tradition of pro providing gracious style and impeccable service to visitors. During a period of decline in the late 50s, early 60s, the hotel was purchased by Ben Marcus, who was determined to bring the hotel back to its former glory. Several years of renovations took place and some significant additions were made including a new 23-story guest room tower. Over the years, the Feister has played host to many dignitaries and the most famous musicians and actors of the time. The most historic hotel in Wisconsin, the Feister is a member of the elite preferred hotels and resorts worldwide and historic hotels of America, the program of the National Trust for Historical Preservation. The hotel is also a perennial winner of the AAA Four Diamond Award. The Feister Hotel serves guests with superior accommodations. All of the hotel's rooms and suites have magnificent furnishings and are all smoke-free. The hotel has 307 rooms which combine contemporary luxury and the charm of the old world. With views of the Hotel Michigan offers re relaxation and incredible views to guests. 
There are 82 suites which have wet bars and sitting rooms. The heritage suites have separate baths and showers, vanities, beautiful bathrooms, and California-sized beds. The king suites are located in the historical section of the hotel. The, queen, the king suites have two rooms, a parlor and a bedroom with one king bed. There is also a pull-out sofa sleeper in the parlor room. The Tower King and Tower Double Rooms are deluxe rooms which have spectacular views of the city and Lake Michigan. The Feister Double Room are double, du double deluxe rooms which are located in the section of the hotel which was renovated in 2008. The Feister Governor Suite is a three-room suite that includes a desk, a flat-screen television, makeup mirrors, hair dryers, and other amenities. Mason Street Grill is the hotel's martini lounge, which is located on the 23rd floor. The grill served high-quality wood-grilled steaks, excellent sandwiches, and delicious homemade desserts. The welcome staff will make you feel right at home. The Blue Bar and Lounge is also located on the hotel's 23rd floor, and they serve the city's best fondue. For dinner reservation, the guest service department is ready to assist. Whatever you need, be it may a extra pillow or other special requests, there is room service 24 hours a day. The famed Feister Hotel is one of the most haunted hotels in the country and arguably the world. It is a historic landmark in Milwaukee which is home to professional baseball and basketball teams whenever they are in town. Major League Baseball players have reported a wide range of paranormal activity when they stayed in the hotel. Some of the things they reported are electrical anomalies, objects manipulation, and apparitions. Adrian Beltry, a player for the, Lou, the Dodgers, had said in Sports Illustrated that he heard knocking on the hallway in his room. He went out to investigate but found no one. Later, he saw the air conditioning and television switch on and off by themselves. When he was sleeping, he was awakened by pounding noises from behind his headboard. He was also so scared that he took a bat with him to bed for protection. He was, the only, he was only able to sleep for two hours during his three-night stay. Carlos Gomez, another baseball player for the Minnesota Twins, also experienced something paranormal a day before his big game. He, dis he heard disembodied voices, then saw his iPod switch on by its 12. The iPod then began vibrating wildly and almost fell to the floor. He put the iPod back on the table when it started doing the same thing again. As well as many reports of mischievous activity, electrical malfunctions, several guests have also reported seeing apparitions of, a, of an elderly gentleman thought to be in the spirit of none other than the hotel's far founder, Charles Feister, walking the halls. Alright everyone, this is our last story. Uh, it's a pretty special one for us. It is in our hometown. I've been here on a number of occasions. Uh, my mom worked there for a time as a secretary. Uh, and our yearly 4th of July fireworks, which happen off the lake, uh, usually, me and my family go down and sit on the rocks right outside this building. So, it's pretty special for us, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. This is the Kemper Center. 
Kemper Center had its beginnings in 1861 as the private home of Wisconsin's first United States Senator, Charles Durkee. In 1865, Senator Durkee's home became a boarding school for young women. The girls' school became Kemper Hall in 1871 in member of Bishop Jackson Kemper, the first missionary bishop for the Northwest Territory of the American Episcopal Church. When the Episcopal Sisters of St. Mary assumed leadership of the school in 1878, Kemper Hall also became the mother house for the Western Province, which then extended to the Pacific Ocean. Kemper Hall emphasized learning, prayer, athletic competition, and self-discipline. Classes were demanding and focused on developing critical thinking skills. Students were taught to fight the good fight, which was the school's motto, with spiritual, intellectual, and physical force in order to right the wrongs they encountered. As Kemper Hall, the school educated youth for over 100 years and celebrated its 105th anniversary in 1974 when it, gra when it granted diplomas to its 100th graduating class. However, in 1975, the Sisters of St. Mary and the Kemper Hall Board of Directors decided to close the school and sell the buildings, unable to staff and maintain the school any longer. Mary Elizabeth, also known as Penny, Palmer, and Roth, a 1958 graduate of Kemper Hall and the Kemper Hall Development Director when it closed, along with a group of other concerned alumni and civic leaders, led the fight to preserve and keep Kemper Hall and the Durkee Mansion from private development. One year later, Kemper Center was placed on the National Register of Historic Places. Kemper Center Inc. was established as a 501c3 nonprofit organization so that the property could be purchased on a land contract until additional funding could be secured. The preservers of Kemper raised $150,000, which was matched by a federal land and water conservation grant, to purchase the property from the Sisters of St. Mary. Kemper Center was then given to Kenosha County and it became Kenosha's 7th County Park. Under the continuing leadership of Penny Enroth and the Kemper Center Board of Directors, Kemper Center Inc. assumed management of operations in January 1976. Over the years, the Kemper Center has expanded to include Anderson Arts Center and hosts a variety of special events, programs, classes, art exhibitions, and private events in the community each year. This is the legend. A black robe floats in the freezing water. A young girl stands on the lakeshore rocks. Cold hands shove deep in her pockets and squints at the unnatural dark mass bobbing below. Her little brother walks up to her side, their breath cloudy in the winter air. The thing in the water reaches the land below. The black cloth covers something malformed. After only a moment's hesitation, the children descend to see what they have found. A minute later, they are both running down Durkee Avenue toward their home, panicked and pale. The police arrive at the lakeshore minutes after the children tell their mother what was floating in the waters. It is January 1900 in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and the body of a nun lies washed up in the sand. Days before the discovery, the sister had been working at Kemper Hall. The legend, which has never been verified, is that the sister came to work at the school in 1899, a young woman newly out of seminary. 
Her behavior became, began to degenerate quickly, a sort of madness taking hold of her mind. While this alarmed the other sisters, it was not enough to prevent what supposedly happened. The sister threw herself from the rocks outside of Kemper, down into the lake. She was reported missing for days until the children found her. The story doesn't end there. In the centuries since, sightings of mysterious figures cloaked in blackness have pervaded Kemper Hall, now known as Kemper Center. There are reports of figures appearing in the hallways and disappearing when pursued, or more often just a feeling of being watched. Sightings often involved apparitions passing by the windows or dark shadows along the walls. In the echoing halls within the center, visitors report creaking footsteps with no source. Other legends beyond the sister have sprung up as well, including a nun who fell down the spiraling observatory staircase and a teenager student who jumped from the roof. The grounds are open to the public. There is also another local legend from Kemper Center, and this is one that I have heard from locals and people that I know. Supposedly, during the days of the girls' school, there was a very evil and twisted headmistress. She would ruthlessly torture the girls, verbal and physical attacks. It is said that some of the girls became fed up with their treatment at the hands of this woman and threw her off the roof. Reports from locals say that it was deemed an accident and she fell without the assistance of the girls, but locals think otherwise. Alright guys, thank you for listening. I know uh, it probably doesn't sound the greatest, but we're going to continue to work on this. Um, this is something that we're both uh, very excited about doing. And um, please rate us on any podcast that allows you to. Uh, also found us, find us on Instagram at uh, creepy underscore speakeasy to be notified when podcasts are coming up or when they have been posted. And enjoy the rest of your day. Also, if you want to follow along with our topics for today, uh, you can go on our Instagram and... I have posted photos of all the locations that we did today on this podcast. Thank you.